Hey everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival, and welcome to podcast episode number 259. Okay, so by now you've seen all the news out there, and there's been another mini-wave of these massacres happening in our country, as a few nut-job active shooters out there have again targeted innocent lives. Well, I hate to say it, my friends, but this problem is not going away, and I think it's only going to get worse, actually. And you and I both know that the only ones who can protect ourselves and those that we love in public is us. And what it takes to effectively do that without becoming paranoid and afraid is exactly what we're here to talk about in this week's broadcast. And I have a very special guest to help us out. Now, it's all coming right up, but first, don't forget to grab this week's free show notes, including a handy-dandy one-page cheat sheet covering all the main points. All you have to do is go to www.mcsmagazine.com slash 259 and download it all absolutely free. And now, let's talk tactics. Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. It happened again. Not once, but twice. Twice over a single weekend, mass shooters in Ohio and Texas targeted helpless populations of human beings and opened fire on them. Now, to say that these attacks are cowardly and vile is almost meaningless at this point. Of course they are, right? Across the country, though, people are throwing up their hands, pounding their desks, and demanding that we do something, anything, about mass shootings. And both sides of the argument are at each other's throats about guns, gun ownership, and how to deal with the mass shooting problem and what causes it. But nobody's talking about what you should be doing about the conventional wisdom in these horrible scenarios. What makes today's politically motivated mass shooter different from past spree killers? How do you prepare yourself mentally for a mass shooting when we all think it happens to other people and not us? What are the actual legal ramifications of intervening in a mass shooting in this weird society of ours? And what are some unconventional responses to this deadly scenario? Uh, answering these questions and more is exactly what we're here to talk about today. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine and executive director of the New World Patriot Alliance with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And our guest today is Alan Burris, who teaches a program on exactly this topic, on surviving active shooters. Alan, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate you having me on. I'm glad you got some time for it. I mean, with all the, you know, everything that comes up, every time there's a mass shooting like this, I always think, like, this, that's when the phone calls start coming. Like, that's when people want the training. It's a, we're such a reactive society that... You know, it's like it, it just we seem to only be triggered by bad events. So I'm really looking forward to help getting your in, input here on some proactive things that our listeners can do for dealing with this in their own in their own environment, basically. So so listen, everybody, Alan is a longtime friend of Modern Combat Survival. He's actually spoken with us about this topic before. Now, he's a former 82nd Airborne Infantry Paratrooper and Sniper School Instructor. But it was his actual experiences that provided the backbone for his realistic look at self-defense. Barroom brawls, street fights, and barrack ruckuses combined with bouncing, security, and bodyguard work taught him the realities of fighting and street violence. As an author, martial arts instructor, speaker consultant, and the creator of seven self-defense instructional DVDs, Alan's latest project has been one of his biggest and the most attributed to what we're going to be talking about today. And that's been how to bust through the myths about how to survive an active shooter or other terrorist attack. And how do you educate first responders and civilians about what really works when a no-warning ambush happens and your survivability is in your hands alone? Now, you can make sure that you go check out his stuff on Active Shooter and other responses and other, other ways of defending yourself over at www.surviveashooting.com. 
right, Alan. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into this. I mean, this has been a very, it's been a very scary time after every time, like I said, like these, these mass shootings seem to like disappear for a little while and all of a sudden it, they just, something gets triggered and it, it, you know, we don't really know necessarily what it is. Although, like I said, both sides of the political aisle always like to point the fingers at the other side. And essentially what, what it is though, is that we, this is a, this is a very strange time that we're in. And so uh, we have, we have people on the left that are, that are targeting people on the right, people on the right that are targeting people on the left. And I mean, physically, I mean, an actual attacks that are happening and, and all of this finger pointing doesn't lead to any solutions. But I always think that the first thing is really understand, like know your enemy, right? Like, like Lao Tzu said, like know your enemy. And so when we talk about the type of people, the type of people who will go ahead and decide, yep, this is, it's my turn now. I'm going to go ahead and grab a weapon and go target innocent people. What are we seeing now in, in your studying and looking at, at the experiences that we've had with the differences here of the type of shooters that might be out there that we want to be conscious of, that we want to be able to identify ahead of time. Um, you know, we have politically, political motivations. These last ones, some of it were racially motivated. Um, and we see actually like more and more racial division happening in the country as well. I mean, there's just seems like trying to get some sort of profile down for who are we supposed to be guarding against? It seems like there's different types of people out there that, that we're looking at. So what are you seeing right now in these differences of how these, these shooters are, uh, you know, basically the Columbine type spree killer versus the, you know, racially motivated or politically motivated shooter? Yeah, that's a good question, Jeff. And we still don't have a definitive profile of a typical active shooter. They, they have varied so much. We've had men and women. We've had young and old. We, we've had all different colors. So we don't really have a definitive profile. And, you know, I leave it to some of the experts, you know, with PhDs and doctors and this and that to try to figure out why people are doing this. And as of yet, Nobody has. My focus is what do you do when the bullets start flying? You know, and what, how can you do it? So I don't really focus as much on it. Was it politically motivated? Was he bullied? Was he, I don't know what's going on in people's mind, but I do know what we can do when bullets are flying or even what we can do before the bullets are flying to prepare or be better prepared if they do. Um, because it is, I mean, Definitely the political turmoil in our country probably contributes to some of these people. I mean, there's, to my, in my, my view, there's already something screwed up in here. If you want to go kill people, something's wrong. Now, if you use a political motivation or any other motivation, that's still so wrong. And I just want to focus on how can I help good people stay alive? Yeah. Yeah. And it's getting harder even like, um, you know, what's the best way to not get in a fight with a biker, right? you know, don't go to biker bars, right? Don't pick on bikers when you're out there. So like, those are the obvious things, right? How do you not get in a bar fight? Don't go into bars. I mean, there's that whole thing. So you're right. I mean, it's getting harder. It, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's getting hard to profile these things because, you know, one was done at a Walmart, you know, it's like, okay, what, I'm not supposed to go to Walmart or, you know, obviously it would be like, if there, if there are a lot of political shootings, well, stay away from political protests where there might be you know, whack jobs who are or are just fed up and they're going to go and they're going to shoot at the, the other side. Like, I guess it, it really comes down to like what the target is, right? And what's scary about that is target are students for school shootings and politically motivated. We've seen them at political events and, you know, but political speech can, 
incite somebody and you're right like they're crazy anyway and so it only takes one little thing maybe to push them over the edge where they start pulling a trigger and it is getting really hard to figure out i mean that's what's scary about the whole thing and that's really where domestic terrorism like that's where it succeeds for the terrorists is when you know like just where not to go right like i always think of like 9-11 like everybody wouldn't go into like the sears tower after that because you know a plane flew into a bit, very big building but that um that washington dc shooter that sniper if you remember um this was man this is going back a ways but that sniper was just a guy and his i think it was his stepson i believe it was in the trunk of a car who were just picking people off like at the gas station so i get it like you fly planes into a into a, a skyscraper don't go into big buildings but when you can't even like go out and pump gas without wondering whether a bullet's headed your way that's the scary part of i think all of this is that we're seeing it across all these different locations and different people targeted it's like how do you how do you look at yourself and say well it can't happen to me because i'm not in this group or i do this or whatever mm -hmm. right exactly because we don't i mean we've had churches um, high, um, higher ed um, institutions, elementary schools, um, bars, concerts, Walmart, different stores. There is no typical place, just like there's no typical active shooter. It, yeah. it is varied so much. Yeah. And, and you're right. That is what scares, that is what scares people. Yeah. So I think the other thing here, I mean, one of the challenges I believe for um, for civilians out there especially is is this concept of denial um you know we saw this in the parkland shooting where the deputy was i mean deputy was fired he didn't because for not taking action right and you know i think for for a lot of people it's the the react it's like how quickly you can react is one of the biggest survivability factors here but it's that denial that one this this probably will never happen to me this only happens in other states or other places where you know, you would, ex you would kind of expect them. Although I think, you know, I think most people have gotten past that, but there's still always this denial of one, I won't, it won't happen to me, but also even during the event, I think you write about this in your book, um, that you have over at survivorshooting.com about how it's that denial that can cause you to freeze, right? And so, um, what, what, what can people do psychologically to try and overcome that, that, um, that knee jerk response to, uh, just freeze and try and, oh, this can't be happening. I'm sure this is, this is not really a shooter. Um, how can somebody kind of make that leap a lot faster to be able to take faster action? Um, there's, a, there's a number of things. First and foremost, acknowledge that it can happen. You know, a few months ago, I was at a conference where Dave Grossman was speaking and a few others, and one of the speakers was Pastor um, Frank down there from the Texas shooting a couple of years ago. You know, 26 people were killed, wow. including his daughter. You know, his daughter was one of those 26. He wasn't at the church that day. He was up in Oklahoma. But the thing that really that I really remember is he told us that a little bit before that shooting, he had a conversation with somebody. And he said, things like that don't happen here. We're just a little country church. Mm. And he says he will never forget making that comment. And then that tragedy, you know, he, he lost his daughter and 25 others um, in that shooting. Um, we have to acknowledge that it does and can happen anywhere. Church, Walmart, restaurants, 
wherever. So that's the first. You know, next, we need to have a general plan. You know, when you get on a plane, what do they tell you? Look where your exits are. So you have a plan that if something happens, you know how to get your seatbelt and get to the exit. Well, I want people to have a general plan, too, knowing how to get out of a place, knowing how to barricade and lock themselves in in a lockdown, if that's the, the best strategy. And I want them to know how to fight back and, and take that shooter out um, and have a plan of doing that if there's no other option and having the mental wherewithal. I mean, I always teach that in my classes that you have to have the mental that you're going to do whatever it takes to survive. And you add some training and some breathing exercises so you can control the stress. I mean, those are all things we can do to be prepared for the worst. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I love your analogy of um, like going on a plane. You're right. I mean, I fly a lot. And you're right. I mean, it's like it's almost become just, you know, routine. I mean, it is a routine, right? Like you hear, you hear the exact same words. Um, but what I also find interesting about that is that it's really simple too, right? Like they tell you, you know, and, and, and again, I, mean, I guess it's very much like an active, active shooter scenario where it's like, okay, how many planes actually, I think we have more mass shootings than we have plane crashes, right? So, but yet we get this briefing all the time and it's a simple plan. Like they know not to make it complicated, you know, do this, do this, do this. They show you a video. They show you lots of different ways of doing it. They have somebody demonstrating it. They've got a video sometimes. So you're right. I mean, I've never thought of it like that, but just, I guess having like, just knowing that you've got that plan to get started. They do that at the beginning, not like when the plane is at you know, like 90, 90 degrees headed straight down toward the ground. Yeah. Like, everybody pay attention real quick. You're going to have this, uh, this uh, oxygen come down. So that's, uh, that's an interesting analogy. I like that. Um, so listen, everybody, we've been talking with Alan Burris. You know, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, Amanda Ripley in her book, um, I think about, I forget the name of it, but Amanda Ripley's book, she has um, statistics of where plane crashes where people that paid attention to where the exit got out and they pass people sitting there in shock that died of smoke inhalation. Um, so, I mean, it, it is proven that a simple plan and that pre-visualization and knowing what you'll do in an emergency saves lives. Wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty powerful. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Um, listen, everybody, we've been talking with Alan Burris of SurvivalShooting.com about tactics for preventing and responding to a rapid mass murder, which is actually the term that we're, a lot of people are using now for active shooter. Uh, and we have, obviously we have a lot more to get into here, including the potential legal pitfalls that you might face in your own tactical response. Also, unorthodox actions that you might take, might not have thought of, but they might just save your life. And what to do when the cops show up to rescue citizens, how you can help or actually hurt their response. There's only one of those that you actually want to do. All that and more coming right up, but first, check out this special message. <laughs> In any disaster, crisis, or attack, your life and the life of those you love could solely rest on the survival gear you've acquired. Do you have the proper gear to protect you from the threats you'll face? Whether it's preparing your home against the destruction and mayhem of a city in chaos, or you're bugging out to a safer location when a natural disaster forces you from your home, the supplies you have right now could ensure your survival or seal your fate. Don't take the risk. 
Claim your free copy of our exclusive guide, Survival Gear Secrets, at survivalgearsecrets.com and discover the seven-phase survival gear plan every family must prepare for or face the consequences. Five no-bullshit warning signs that a collapse is headed your way, so you're already in action long before your neighbors even know what hit them. And how to know exactly when it's safer to stay at home and shelter in place. Or get in the family bug out mobile and get the hell out of Dodge. Your fellow citizens may be fine with sleeping in a crowded stadium waiting for FEMA to hand them a granola bar, juice box, and a blankie. But you know that no one can protect your family better than you can. If you're properly prepared with the right supplies and equipment to ensure your survival. Don't wait until it's too late. Find out what's missing from your survival gear plan by grabbing your free copy of Survival Gear Secrets now at www.survivalgearsecrets.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back talking with Alan Burris of SurvivorShooting.com about tactics that you can use for preventing and responding to an active shooter event. Now, we have a lot more to get to, so let's go ahead and jump back in now. So, Alan, when it comes to a, a rapid mass murder event. Um, I, hate to, I hate to bring this up, and it really sucks like in all these types of situations because there are those sheepdogs of us out there, right? There are those people that run toward the gunfire. There's people that run away. And, and listen, everybody, I'm not saying like one is better than the other. Like it real, I think people, for the most part, um, just are the way that they are. Like I think you either are the type of person that you want to go and help or the type of person that you know, you're going to get away from the danger, which would be my recommendation for people, right? But nonetheless, some people I know out there are going to want to just like, I've got my, I'm, I'm concealed carry, I'm going to grab my gun, or even if I don't have a gun, there's shots going off, and they're the type of person that just wants to run in and help out, tackle the shooter or shoot the shooter or whatever. But, you know, as we've seen so many times now, there's, there's potential legal problems with your response because you're responsible for whatever happens that you cause to be an action there. So um, I hate to bring it up, but what are some of those, like what are some of the things that people really need to understand about their legal obligations when they're, when they think that a tactical response is something that they want to do? Um, you, you have to understand that if somebody is killing other people, you have the right to kill that person to save lives if they are still a threat. We know that. However, in doing so, if you injure or kill someone else, an innocent bystander, you can be liable both criminally and civilly for what you do. Um, so if you shoot at an active shooter and miss and hit an innocent person, you can be liable for that. Um, if you have a baseball bat in your classroom, and to ready for an active, you know, threat that comes in, and a student gets a hold of that baseball bat and caves in another student's head, you could be liable for that. I mean, with our, our society, I mean, we have to be careful of that. And I, I talk about this topic all the time because I'm dealing with a lot of schools, um, hospitals, churches, and stuff with Reflex Protect. And they're worried about those liabilities, and they should be, you know, because when I'm talking to the risk managers, attorneys, CEOs, liability is a huge factor. And that's why the non-lethal aspect of Reflex Protect fits in a lot of those plans where the lethal um, weapons um, they're worried about, and rightfully so. Um, police officers, you know, they should be trained better than most people. 
And depending on what statistics you look at, you know, 75 to 80 percent miss ratio in shooting incidents. So if they're missing that much, um, are you training as much officers? as police? You're talking you police officers? Yes. Okay. Yes, police officers missing. And they should be trained more. I mean, that's part of their job. If you're not trained at least as good as them, how much are you going to miss in a situation? And that's just a factor that you better be aware of because I don't want good people trying to do the right thing ruining their lives because they missed or did something else. Yeah. So are there ways to mitigate that? I mean, um, maybe this kind of leads me into um, my next question for you because we have covered this topic before. But um, and we did it pretty extensively, like we did this for our members before, for our New World Patriot Alliance members. And uh, so we covered a lot of like the traditional responses, you know, running, hiding, um, uh, you know, uh, fighting back, um, improvised weapons. You know, we, we talked about those different things, but it's such a dynamic situation, especially when you have so many other people around that. I wonder, are there, are there any other things that as you've been doing more and more research and more training in this area that you've found to be more unconventional responses, maybe things that people wouldn't normally think of other than just ducking behind some cover or, you know, the things that they're being told already, the basic stuff. But are there advanced things or other tips, tricks, and tactics that you've learned along the way that would help to, one, be more successful if you are going to fight back, or two, be more successful if you're not going to fight back, but you're going to um, survive another way. Or, or three, just to go back to the last question, like to mitigate that that legal um, challenge of yeah, we're most likely going to miss, and how do we take this person out, or how do we how do we help out here without um, hitting other people? What, what, how do we get out of the box here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there's and there's a lot of different things out there that I've seen, some good, some bad. You know, so when you want, want to talk about unconventional things. Um, you know, playing dead, hiding under dead bodies. I don't advocate either of these, but they've both been used successfully to keep people alive. Mm. You know, the people did what they had to at the time, and it worked. You know, we hear about, you know, throwing cans of vegetables or hockey pucks or, or whatever as a guy comes in the door. Is that the best plan? You know, I don't know, but it's a heck of a lot better than jumping under the desk and hiding and dying. I mean, I guarantee if you walk through a door and you had 20 cans or 20-something hitting you, it's going to screw you up for a minute, giving that other, you know, hopefully the teacher or somebody else time enough to tackle you down and pound you um, and, and take the weapon away. Um, I don't advocate anybody going head-on to a to a, an active shooter, whether you're armed or, you know, with reflex protect, the firearm, or just yourself. Um, your better strategies are going to be to attack from the flanks. You're going to ambush at doorways or at corners, or if the guy comes in a room, it's the people that are on the sides and behind that have the best chance of either, you know, shooting, spraying, or tackling um, that person. So I think that's one of the best tactics I can give somebody is you want to be flank or behind. You never are trying to go straight on with somebody. If If you're carrying a firearm, train with it. And train with breathing, tra- you know, and, and train with moving, and make dang sure that you not only are paying attention to what you're shooting, but what's behind what you're shooting. And you may not want to take that shot if what's behind. I mean, yeah, you kill the bad guy, the bullet goes through and, and kills an innocent person. You're liable. Hmm. And so, killing the bad guy, you're not going to get in trouble. You injure or kill an, an innocent civilian. 
you know, that just ruins your life. You know, legal, criminal, civil, and, you know, a mess forever. So I want to make sure that you are training and that you're also visualizing and doing scenarios of shoot, don't shoot. Bunch of people behind them, I'm not going to shoot. I'm going to maneuver till I can get a better, better angle and shot. And that's an awful lot to do for most people. I mean, that's military and law enforcement kind of training. Um, that's what you really should have if you think you're going to be the, the hero and go stop one of these people. That's a really good point. Um, and you're right. It is like, like, that is truly like military and, um, and law enforcement type training. And it really takes you out of what we would normally think of if I'm concealed carry of what my threat's going to be. Like I always think, okay, well, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be somebody mugging me in, in a parking lot, you know, trying to attack me there. It's one on one person. I have, I don't have a, maybe I don't have a ton of people around me because bad guys don't like to have a ton of people around, right? They don't want to be looked, they want to be spotted. They don't want to be noticed. They want to be caught. Whereas a mass shooter, it's completely the opposite. It's going to be, you're not going to expect it, but also they want lots of people around. It makes everything harder. I think more for police, it's a harder issue, but even, you know, I'm thinking just for military, even then we had, you know, oftentimes we had civilians on the battlefield that we had to be um, cautious of. I, I certainly remember people coming out in the streets during firefights and like, like civilians, kids would be out on the streets because they were watching like the, the it's really strange, but but you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a unique, um, and, and so what do you recommend for like somebody that is concealed carry? Like, how do they make that mind shift there for, um, for, for going from thinking about like, oh, I'm prepared for a parking lot hold up in the dark with it's me and one other person versus the, you know, the training that they might need and that like this kind of stuff that you provide where they have to really think tactically almost like a police officer or, uh, or military. Part of it is getting some training. And I, you know, I, I primarily train those people that are unarmed and I, I do the training for the reflex protect, the, the non-lethal defense uh, response. Um, I, you know, look up somebody like Greg Elifretz, uh, you know, or, you know, and there's a lot of good trainers out there. He comes to mind really quick, but you know, people that are actually doing the firearms classes, um, teaching these tactics and strategies. And it's not just a one-time thing. If you really think that you're going to be the hero and be prepared for this, it's a continual type training. Um, and so, but, you know, like I said, Greg, Greg teaches some of those classes. He also teaches some of the combat um, trauma aid classes, which I encourage everyone to get. You want to save lives? Make sure you know how to use a tourniquet, a pressure bandage, and, and the first aid. Um, and Greg teaches those, and, and we teach some of those in my class as well. So, um, and the Stop the Bleed program. So, I mean, besides knowing how to use a firearm, if you want to save lives, get the medical training as well. Yeah, I'm writing that I'm writing that down because I, mean, I was just thinking about that actually yesterday. I was like, you know, everybody everybody trains for like we're, as we're, I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking, you know, there's there's like different heroes, right? Like there's the hero. Like I was thinking of the the um, the Boston bombing, right? Like, can anybody name any of the, like the officers or the res the first responders that, that came in tactically for that situation? I don't think anybody can, unless you were like really that close to the, um, to the, to the event. Um, however, I still remember like, uh, I think it was the cowboy guy. I forgot what his name was or whatever, but there was a guy that was like hauling people out of there that had blown off limbs and, you know, and it was like, who is the cowboy? Who is the cowboy? And 
like that person is the most one of the most memorable people from um, from that event because he was there to help out afterwards. And so you're you're right. I mean that's that's an interesting um, like training caveat there. It's not just tactical training, but you're going to have 20, 30 people around you bleeding to death, and you can really be the hero by being alive, by, by not being shot yourself, and having the training, and even like you said, like a tourniquet or something that you can use or, or skills that you can use. Because it's not like there's going to be 50 first responders showing up in an ambulance like right away. There's going to be time before all those people will get in, before they're cleared to get in. And so having that training, that's a real unconventional, I think, training um, tactic that people really need to also look at too. That's such a such a great um such a great point. Um, you know, Alan, when 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 it is all over there, okay, and and um or not all over, but when the police respond or when they have first responders are coming in and stay there. I mean, it's, I remember there was a, there was a hostage situation, a school hostage situation in Russia that ended terribly because it was just such an aggressive response, right? You can't just come in there and spray and pray. I'm not saying that's what they did, but I'm just saying like it, it was, it wasn't the outcome that, that people wanted. Um, obviously the, the cops are going to, are going to show more restraint than that. And, and we're learning more and they're getting more training, unfortunately, because, they, we need them to have this training more and more now. But um, but what are the major things um, that citizens can do um, that are involved with that scenario that will that will help keep them alive when first responders are coming and and they're coming in and they're taking action and they're doing what their training is telling them to do? Like how do they do that? Especially one of my biggest concerns with this is that I know the people that listen to our podcast they are like the sheepdogs of our society. And oftentimes they, they want to help out. Like the, the cops are hearing, yeah, you know what? I've got a gun too. Let's get this son of a bitch or what? I just, I know that that propensity there for wanting to, to, it's not for being a hero, but it's just because we have a protective instinct inside of us. That's who we attract to our, our podcast, our magazine, all those things. So, um, what, what advice do you have for being a sheepdog in that scenario? How do we help the police? Even if that means just getting the hell out of their way, what, what should we do? First and foremost, keep your weapon in its holster until you're about to use it. Don't go running around looking for the active killer with your firearm in your hand. One, if the police show up and see you running around with that firearm, they may mistake you and you're shot. Two, what if there's another concealed carrier who thinks you're the shooter? And now you've gotten to shoot out with another innocent good guy. So keep the weapon hidden, concealed in your carry until you can draw and take the shot at the killer and, and neutralize the threat if that's what you're going to do. And you can do so safely, you know, as we already discussed, without injuring anybody else. Yeah. Um, when police show up, uh, they want to see your empty hands. You know, weapons are what kill people and kill police. Nothing in your hand. You know, even if you've taken down the bad guy or you've taken the bad guy down and you took his weapon. I don't want you waving that around and holding it when the police show up. What I teach in the classes is maybe we tackled the guy, took his weapon, and two guys are holding him down. He's not dead, but they're restraining him. I have the weapon just in case he gets loose, but instead of holding it, I'm going to set it on a table and be standing by that table. If he gets loose, I can pick it up and have it. If the police come in, hey, his gun is on the table, the bad guy's there. Never want to be mistaken for the bad guy by the police or another good guy. 
And so I want to keep the weapon concealed until it's time to use it, if I can do so safely and stop the threat and harm no one else. And I want, if I want it, if it's his weapon, I'm going to put it on the table or something where I could pick it up or tell the police where it asks. If it's my own weapon, I'm putting it back concealed. So when the police come in, it's like, he's there, I'm here. You know, I I, I shot him. I, I have a concealed weapon. It's on my belt. Go ahead and take it. Um, but not going to ever let them think that I'm the bad guy or another good guy think that I'm the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. All good points. All good points. Um, it's been awesome. I mean, there, there's, there has been some things that we have not covered yet um, on the show and in the other, um, the other meeting that we had, the other uh, interview that we had. Um, so I'm going to tell, I'm going to, I always do, I've been starting to do this now where I write down like the things that I got out of it, like my top three uh, tips, because I really want people to think about these as actionable tips. So, so tip number one I got out of it is to, is to think of it like, um, for those people that have flown before, think of it, think of your response like that briefing that you get on the plane. Like you need a, you need a plan, but you need a simple plan because your adrenaline is going to be skyrocketing. You have complete pandemonium around you. And if you have a complicated plan, it's not going to work. The, the how to survive a plane crash plan is simple. It is, you know, it's, it's done very simply. It's done through demonstration. And so really have to visualize, as Alan said, you know, visualize your response. Get yourself used to that in your own mind of what that would look like. What would it feel like to be able to make sure that that is part of your ingrained response? So you're not one of those people like on the plane that's choking from exhaust or, or, or from smoke while the people with the, the simple plan are going by you to save themselves. Uh, that was tip number one. Tip number two I got was, um, you know, the, the tactics that you, you would use for an active shooter scenario is different than the tactics that you would, you would use for inside of a parking lot for the most part, because the, the environment is dynamically different. And so don't think that just your regular how to counter a mugging training is going to be enough for this. How you engage a target as that is an active shooter is different possibly most likely than it would be with somebody who is mugging you in a parking lot. So make sure that you get specific tactics, even if it's just a crash course, or even if it's just reading a book, um, get that, understand what the differences are tactically so that you know how to employ those tactically, all right, and what your options are also. Um, and the third part I got here was, you know, part of the training, in quotes, that you get here is, isn't just um, how do you shoot your gun and how do you take down an active shooter, but do you have the the uh, skill set that you need possibly after? You might be shot. A loved one might be shot. There could be 30 people that are shot all around you. How you can help sometimes the best is to, one, have a medical kit on you, at least a small a trauma kit that you can use. Um, and that goes even not, you know, outside of just active shooter. People have heard me talk about that. Like, I think that's everyday carry. If you carry a gun, you need at least a tourniquet and maybe a few other things there, but at least a tourniquet because he might be get the lucky shot in and not just you. So that and the skills to back it up. Um, and of course, definitely go check out if you want the extra, um, that training, you want to go over to surviveashooting.com over to Alan's website and check it out. Um, Alan, this is the other thing. I don't, I didn't tell you about this because this is, um, it's kind of supposed to be more of a surprise, but we do a lot kind of a lightning round at the end here. So I have three questions for you, um, that are just, they're not on active shooter. So the first question I have for you is, um, okay. in your free time, like what is your, like if you were to retire, like your your hobby that like I could do this, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, honey. Just you know, let me be. What what is that that like retirement hobby that you think you would you would um pick up and that would be your thing? You know, that's a tough one because I love 
training in martial arts and teaching martial arts. And I love writing and speaking and teaching about how to keep people safe. I'm sometimes the happiest when I'm on the stage um, and, and helping people be safe. So I guess if I had unlimited money, no money concerns, I would just travel around the, the world with my wife and give free presentations on keeping people safe and then just enjoy the heck out of the local place. You know, I love burgers and trying new burgers every place and seeing new sites. But but I really do love the, the teaching. Um, and that's one of the reasons I joined Reflex Protect is to, to help, you know, combined with them, I'm getting out and teaching even more. And it, it, that's what I enjoy the most. Yeah. Good answer. I'm glad you, I'm, I'm sure your wife is glad that you stuck in there traveling with my wife. If you have all the money in the world, you're traveling See, you without know, her. Okay. Well, part, sometimes I get to, you know, when I was out training Virginia Mason Hospital in Seattle last month, I took my wife and daughter. I paid for their plane tickets, you know, my stuff. But yeah, so I do try to take them on some of my, my training trips too. So. Yeah. Um, okay, second question is, what's your uh, go-to home defense weapon? What do you? I know you are a firearms owner, and you're ex-military, and I know you, you've got training in your bodyguard and stuff. Like, what is your go-to home defense weapon that you have uh, at the at the ready? Right now, I have both Reflex Protect, and and I'm old school uh, Browning High Power. Yeah, yeah, you are uh, old I like, school. I like my. I am old school, but you know that the Browning High Power has been through more wars and different things. It's tried and true, and I've had it for years, and I'm it's what I'm most comfortable with. And I, you know, I do have a gun cabinet full of different weapons, but the the Browning, and then I like the and I and I have now Reflex Protect as a non-lethal option for things too. Yeah. Okay. The last one is if you could live anywhere else in the United States, um, other than where other other than where you live, where would it be? You've done some traveling. It has to be in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because um, South Korea is my second home. I, I, you know, I love, I've lived there and I love, love You're South Korea. Over there? Um, I would probably, yeah, I would probably in the United States, I, it would have to be somewhere south because every year my driveway gets longer or I'm getting older. We're both. Um, and so the shoveling snow and the cold winters, I think if I did live somewhere else, it would be south where it was warmer. So Amen, I'm not brother. exactly sure where. So I went from <laughs> Chicago to Texas. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, while we're here, while we're here, you brought up Reflex um, Protect um, a few times here. Why don't you go ahead and let people know um, what what that company is? You just joined this company and and explain to them a little bit about um, what that is and what they offer. Sure. Reflex Protect is a brand new startup company in Montana. We provide a non-lethal defensive spray that is CS based and does not cross contaminate like pepper spray. So it was specifically made to spray indoors and only affect the person sprayed. Um, it's easy to use. It's intuitive. It shoots 15 to 20 feet. It works faster than pepper spray of putting someone down. And we have a patent pending decontaminant that we can help that person or any innocent person that might be sprayed get back to normal in a couple minutes. I mean, it looks like this. It's just, it's a, it's very easy to use. If you can use a gun or a Windex bottle, you can use this. And it's the best non-lethal weapon and spray that I have found. And that's why I teamed up with the company. Yeah. What's the, what's the website for them? Reflexprotect.com. Cool. 
And I said, it's the, it's the only thing that I think my, except for my firearms, it's the only thing, weapon that I have in my house, and I have hundreds of them, that my daughter could stop me with. Um, yeah. Because she can do it from 15 or 20 feet away. She doesn't have to get up close to me like all the other handheld weapons. And that, that's what made me want to join the company. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like a game changer for for a product. So that's uh, very cool. And you were saying like in, in hospitals, especially, you know, places like that where there's lots of people around where they could get cross-contaminated, especially, I think, in hospitals, right? So because that could actually cause somebody's death, you know, in somebody that's around there. So so that's interesting. Awesome. Well, Alan, thank it you so a, much, man. It was specifically designed for them. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you taking this time, man. I got some really good tips out of this, and I'm sure our listeners did too. So listeners, listen, I want to hear from you as well. So make sure you go onto the blog and go down there and let me know what your top three things that you took away from from the talk were. Or if you have anything else to add to the conversation, I'd love to hear you as well. Just head on over to moderncombatandsurvival.com. Go ahead and look for this episode, and I look forward to hearing what you have to say. And until our next Modern Combat and Survival broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying prepare, train, and survive. Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.